Well, we have the opportunity once again to study God's Word. I'd like to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 in our continuing study of the new man in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, the new man in Christ. And I do appreciate all of the letters and the communication about the, the study we're experiencing and the encouragement to continue on as we learn and discover the rich truths that are there in Colossians chapter 3. And maybe as a introduction to our setting today, we might read Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 17 so that we might hear God's word and then study it together. Let's read it together. Colossians 3 verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, mortify or kill or consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on the count of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also <clears throat> put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so as those who have been chosen of God Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What are the characteristics of the new man in Christ. What are the things that should characterize a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, as we've already learned from this series, the characteristics of the new man began for us in our study in Colossians 3.1. Do you remember? There, and by way of summary, it says, when the new man is with Christ or in Christ, he is dead to sin. Remember we studied that in detail some weeks ago? The new man in Christ is death to sin, to self, and to the world. You see it there in verse 3? You have died. Chapter 2, verse 20. You have died with Christ. One of the characteristics of the new man then is that he has actually died in his experience and in his position with Christ to the things of the world. Romans 6.6 6 told us that. We studied that in some detail. Romans 6.6, 6, our old man, our old self, was crucified with him. Romans 6.8 also says that we have died with Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And we saw that. We saw that the new man is characterized 
by his death with Jesus Christ. And not only his death, but his co-resurrection with Jesus Christ. The corollary truth is this, that if believers have indeed died in their relationship to sin, to self, and to the world by virtue of their relationship, their new relationship with Christ, then they are also co-resurrected with Christ to walk in newness of life. You see the reality of that in verse 1 of Colossians 3? It says, since you have been raised up with Christ. Paul is making the argument there that believers, if they are in fact true believers, have been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul says again to them, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him. Romans 6, 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Boy, what a truth. The truth that believers have experienced a co-death and a co-resurrection with the person of Jesus Christ. We're new. We can be called the new man, the new humanity, when it can be said of us that we have died and we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, to walk in a new sphere of existence, a new realm of living. We could call it an aliveness to God. You know that. You know that by your own Christian experience, that before you were saved, you were spiritually blind. You were spiritually dead. And once Christ quickened you in salvation and granted you repentance and faith, the light came on. You were alive. You were new. You were the new man in Christ. And not only that, but you and I experienced as new people in Christ the hiddenness in our relationship with him. And we saw that last time, didn't we? We spoke about that hiddenness, and we said that it implied secrecy. It implied safety, and it implied our identification with Jesus Christ. We are actually identified with Christ, whom Paul says there in Colossians 3, he is our very life. He's not only the the person who we saw in our death to sin, he's not only the person that we saw in our resurrection to new life, but he is our very life right now as believers. Christ just didn't perform a function for us in our salvation by co-dying with us and by being co-raised with us. He right now continues to sustain us because he is our very life right now, even as we speak. He is our life. Apart from Jesus Christ, even apart from Christ right now, after salvation, we would not have any life if it weren't for Christ, who is our life. And that's what Paul says there in Colossians 3.3. And then he says in verse 4, Christ, who is our life, when he is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. I did a little search in some passages that spoke of this spiritual life to God, this newness of life. Romans 6, 11 and 13, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, those alive to God, alive from the dead. Galatians 2, 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Ephesians 2, 5, he made us alive together with Christ. 
Colossians 2.13, he made you alive together with him. What a reality. We have co-died with Christ, died to our sin, died to our own selves, died to the world. We also, because of that death, have been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ to walk in a new sphere of living, a newness of life, an aliveness to God. So Christ is not only real to us in our death and our spiritual resurrection, but he's new to us in our new life now in Christ. He is our life. The new man is united with Christ in his death to sin, to self, and to the world. And the new man is united with Christ in <clears throat> his resurrection to walk in newness of life. And he is united with believers because they now can walk in a new and a dynamic spiritual life with an aliveness to God. And if that weren't enough, if that weren't all, we, according to Colossians 3, 4, will one day be revealed with Jesus Christ in glory. We will have glorified bodies who will then be reunited, if not already done so, with our, our minds, our souls, our physical bodies in such a component fashion that we will actually never die. We will never die. We will always live, and we will always live to give praise and worship and adoration to that same God. We have a life, and that life is inextricably linked with the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ. As he is glorified, we will be glorified. That's the promise of Scripture. Romans 8, 17 and 18. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says the great truth, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. We will experience, if we know Christ, the glory of a resurrected body, a resurrected uniting of our soul and body to the glory of God. You remember Paul saying in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That is a promise, folks. If you are a Christian, that means that you are then also a citizen right now of heaven. And while you are a citizen of heaven, you do not yet now have a glorified body, but you will one day. That is a promise that is a guilt-edge guarantee that you as a believer in Jesus Christ will be united with a glorified body so that the body you now have, this humble condition, will be conformed to the body of His glory. Whatever it is that Christ is glorified with now, you will be glorified with that same kind of body, according to Paul in Philippians 3. What a, what a tremendous truth. And the Apostle John, not wanting to be outdone by Paul, says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we now are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Because of all these spiritual truths, because of our co-death, our co-resurrection, and our co-glorification with Jesus Christ, we can walk in the here and in the now in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole point. Because of these spiritual truths, because of the heavenly realities about you as a believer in Christ, you can walk now in obedience to God. Now that's the new man. That's the characteristics of the new man. But guess what? Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop in verses 1 to 4 of Colossians 3. He's got much, much more to say. Notice what he says in verses 5 to 11. Therefore, as a result of 
all of these things, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside or put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And that is, for us, the topic of our next series of ministries in this wonderful passage. The new man is characterized, number one, by his pursuit of heavenly things. We saw that from verse 1 of Colossians 3. The new man also is characterized by, secondly, his preoccupation with heavenly, heavenly things. We saw that in verses 2 to 4. This morning, we go to the third thing that characterizes the new man in Christ, and we could call it this. The new man is characterized by the putting to death of earthly things. The putting to death of earthly things. The pursuit of heavenly things, being preoccupied with heavenly things, and the putting to death of earthly things. And, for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to be covering three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now you notice the structure of verses 5 to 7. It revolves around the imperative command of verse 5. Do you see it there? It says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now when I read that earlier in our introductory reading, I translated it for us by reading it this way. Therefore, kill or put to death the members of your earthly body. That's a legitimate translation because, frankly, the greater sense of the text is not just consider yourselves as dead to or reckon yourselves as dead to, which may be the reading of some of your translations. It really is better translated and better understood as therefore mortify or kill or put to death the members of your earthly body. In fact, we could really title verses 5 to 7 in and of itself as a single thought, the putting to death of our sinful actions. The putting to death of our sinful actions. Now again, as I've told you before, in the first four verses of Paul's chapter 3 of Colossians, he doesn't stop there by giving us a command. Remember I told you that in verse 1, he told us to do something, that is, keep seeking the things above, but he gave us two motivations. You remember? Our co-resurrection with Jesus Christ and our involvement or identification in his finished work of redemption where he is seated at the right hand of God. That provides the basis or the motivation. I said to you also that verse 2 sets the command, set your mind on the things above, but it also has two motivations, two bases behind that command, and that is verses 3 and 4. For you have died. That's our co-death with Jesus Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. There's that secrecy, that safety, that identification with Christ and also our identification with him in our glorified body with him when he comes. That's the two motivations there. Verse 5 is no different. Therefore, consider or kill or put to death the members of your earthly body as dead to, etc., etc. And then the two bases again, verses 6 and 7, for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. That's the first motivation. And secondly, the second basis, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Now those are two proper motivations 
for the putting to death of any sinful action that we are involved with in the Christian life. And we'll see that as we go along. The first thing I want you to notice, though, in verse 5, is that word, therefore. You see it there, the very first word of verse 5? And it certainly does take us back to verses 1 to 4, but I think it maybe even takes us back even farther. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Verse 20 of chapter 2. It says, If you have died with Christ, and that's a, another one of those assumptions of Paul, and the context certainly provides for us that since idea, since you have died with Christ. And so obviously Paul is hearkening us back all the way to another death. And he says, if or since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Do you see the same kind of parallel wording in chapter 3, verse 5? Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. And there clearly he's drawing a parallel from verse 20. Dying with Christ, that's the context of verses 1 to 4. Dying to the elementary principles of the world as if you were living in the world. And of course he says, in verse 7, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. See, same kind of language, same kind of idea. Verse 20, since this has happened to you, don't live as though you were living in the world. Verse 5, put to death these things on account of the fact that you once were living in them, but that's not true of you anymore. And there he's giving us a parallel account. And it certainly harkens back, I think, to verses 12 to 13 of chapter 2. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, same kind of language, this co-death with Jesus Christ, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead, and again, it talks about death all over the place in this epistle. Death, 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 buried with him. You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression. And when Paul says, therefore, here, he's harkening us back all the way through chapter 2 and maybe even chapter 1 when he talks about our death with Jesus Christ. Paul's therefore means this. You have died. You have rose with Christ and you will be glorified with him. Therefore, as a result of these things, these spiritual realities, on the basis of these things, put to death your sinful actions. And you see, again, he gives us the basis and the motivation for doing so. He doesn't just tell us in a vacuum, you must do this, but he provides for us the reason. And the reason is, you have died with Jesus Christ. Do not go on living in those things to which you have been delivered. If it is true that you have had your body circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, you should therefore kill, put to death, anything that remains of your past life, even the very members of your earthly body, your earthly existence. Paul is saying those things are only of this realm. They're a part of this life only. Therefore, put them to death. Is it not true when Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven that none of these things will be there? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying... See, none of those things are going to be true in heaven to any degree. They will cease to exist. They will be poofed out of existence. And Paul is saying, if you are really a true citizen of heaven, since it's not going to be a part of the realm of heaven when you get there, don't live now as if it were part of the realm of your earthly existence. That's his point. You're a citizen of a new realm, 
a new race of people. Don't go on living as if you were just like you were. That's his point. Put it to death. That's why it's very clear for us to be able to say, then, put to death. Kill. That's the sense of this word. Nekrasate. It's an imperative command. Kill these things. And it really stresses decisive determination. Kill. Put to death. Therefore, as a result of your death with Christ, as a result of your resurrection with Him, as a result of the fact that you will be revealed with Him in glory, as a result of the fact that in heaven none of these things will be a reality, therefore put to death those things now because they speak of a new realm, a new existence, and you are not a part of any of that anymore. So therefore, you ought to put them completely to death. One very clear commentator, O'Brien, said this, being heavenly minded does not mean living in the clouds. The believer who obeys the apostolic injunction to aim at the things above will be involved in an ongoing spiritual warfare here below as he or she puts to death sinful propensities and pursuits and allows the new nature to find outward expression in a godly life. Because they are new persons in Christ, they are to live like new persons. And that really captures the essence of it. If you are a new person in Christ, if this is true of you, then you ought to begin living like it because it is true of you. Throughout the rest of your life, as a new person in Christ, Paul says, consider yourselves as dead to the things of the earth and work like mad to conquer anything that contradicts your new life. That could be a loose translation of this passage. You ought to consider everything in your life that is a part of the old realm, a part of the old existence, as dead to you. And notice he says there in verse 5, mortify the members of your earthly body. Well, that's a kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? Mortify or kill the members of your earthly body. What does he mean by that? What is he doing in speaking of these things? Well, I think it's very simple. He's speaking of sins, this immorality, this impurity, this passion, this evil desire, this greed, as though they were personified in a person. He's speaking of immorality as though it were a person. Impurity as though it were a person. Passion, evil desire, and greed as though it were a person. Personified as, as real and tangible. And he's saying, put that person off. Kill him. Do him a death. Mortify him. You see that little word members there? It's literally the word limbs. Limbs. It's like the personification of the limb of a person, just like Jesus Christ said, that if sin so offends you, what? Cut it off. Cut it off. Put it away from you as though it were a, a person who is encroaching upon your life. And even though obviously it's a different context, it's a very real and vivid picture. If you as a new creation in Christ have anything in your life which could be personified as something to do battle with, kill it. Mortify it. Put it away from you. Even if it were your own very limb. Strong words. Put to death your limbs. Could be another translation. Kill it. And Paul is very common in his use of these kinds of terms, this body and this idea of members. He is no doubt referring to the fact that bodily members or limbs can become instruments of wickedness. And we know that to be true, not only from reading the Scripture, but from our own experience as well. And you can see this very clearly. Turn to Romans chapter 6, and you'll see this coming through. Romans 6.12. 
He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There's that phrase, body, that you should obey its lusts. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members, there's that idea again, of your body to sin, and here's the right sense of it, as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't present anything in your life as though it were the personification of a person being used as an instrument for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, whether that's your hand, your leg, your body, your, your mind even, as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 19 he says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members, that means your life, who you are, your mind, your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The deeds of the body. Those things which are sometimes by us used as members of unrighteousness. You must put them to death. And of course the sense of that particular text is you must continually do so. You must make a decisive break and you must continually as the pattern of your life put to death the deeds of the body and if you do so you will live. I mentioned to you Jesus' words in Matthew 5, Matthew 18. If this sin is so heinous, if it were like a limb, if it were an instrument that your limb was using as an instrument of unrighteousness, cut it off. Pluck it out. James 3.6, same idea. Paul is not advocating, by the way, some ascetic suppression. And remember, the ascetics were in this church and they were saying, you've got to do this to your body and you've got to do that to your body and you've got to have self-flagellation, and you've got to have self-abasement. That's the way to do it. That's the way that you can really get your body under control. And Paul wouldn't be saying the same thing that they're saying. He is saying, no, what I'm saying by your body is your mind. What I'm saying is anything that you do, whether it's your body or your mind, that is serving itself as an instrument of unrighteousness, you must kill it. You must put it away from you. He's calling for the termination of self-centeredness, whether that's physical or mental or spiritual. It's the various kinds of sins which are committed by means of the body, whether that's your mind or otherwise. And he's saying, kill your limbs, the ones that are used for earthly purposes. Put them off from you. It's not the mortification of the flesh like the ascetics would be talking about, some monastical, self-flagellating physical act, but a transformation of your will, a reordering of your mind, reordering it so that you, whether that is physical or mental slash spiritual, you are presenting yourself as a slave of righteousness to God. You're a new person. You're a new creation in Christ. You can't be doing that stuff anymore. It's not a part of you. It's not a part of your new realm. And you say, well, what are those things? And Paul, thankfully, doesn't leave us in the dark. He gives us five sins. And I love the way Paul does this. He doesn't just say, put to death, therefore. He says, put to death, and if you want to know what I mean, if you want to get real practical, here they are. And there are five of them. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You say, why these five and why no other? Well, if you study all the lists of Paul, 
These are fairly common, and it leads us to believe, and history suggests, that there were some basic heathen sins that were true in society of New Testament times, and Paul is simply grouping them together, and he's saying these kinds of sins are not to be a part of your life. The first one, immorality. It's the word porneia. You know, we get the word pornography from it. And it's the term that Paul uses to denote every type of improper sexual sin, including, by the way, sexual activity within marriage or sexual activity outside of marriage, either adultery or fornication. James uses this same word of Rahab the harlot before her conversion, porneia. And it's used, by the way, in many, many places. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read just a few of them for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your physical bodies. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? You see that word harlot there? The word harlot is the word pornea. It's the person who was personified as a life vocation of selling their bodies, whether it was male or female. Fornication. May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. And that's that word, porneia. That's the word Paul uses here. And it's the word he uses in Colossians 3. uses the same word in the list that he gives in Galatians 5.19. Porneia. It's the first word, by the way, listed. And in fact, in most of Paul's lists, it's the first word mentioned. It obviously tells us that that was a major problem and that was a major characterization of the people of that time. Ephesians 5.5. 5. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Porneia, porneia. And it refers, as I said, to, to someone who sold their bodies, whether male or female, for financial purposes or just some sort of sinful desire. And by the way, all of our English words, harlotry, prostitution, unchastity, fornication, are tied to this word porneia. Porneia. Second word, impurity. Impurity. And in this context, it has really reference to a moral impurity in all its forms. It's speaking of a moral uncleanness. and can also mean, by the way, sexual conduct, as it means here. And it could be characterized as deeds resulting from a mind that is full of sensuality and lust. That's why Paul says to the Thessalonians very, very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this, verse 3, is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the word porneia, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Same idea. Romans 1.24, Galatians 5.19, 2 Corinthians 12.21, Ephesians 5.3, all use this same word impurity. And by the way, in most of those contexts, it's also mentioned second behind porneia. Apparently, those were two very, very characteristic sins of the time. And Paul is bringing it to their minds. In fact, we might even be able to say it like this, that porneia is listed first, and then the next three terms, at least in this context, are expressions of what porneia is and does. So you have porneia as the general word, and then you have impurity, the next word, and the next word as expressions of what porneia is. And the third word, passion. Passion. Guess what that word is in the Greek text? Pathos. 
pathos. It has the idea of sexual craving, sexual passion, lust, inordinate affection, erotic desires that are unrestrained. It has to do with taking someone sexually for your own selfish sexual gratification. And believe me, beloved, these are strong words from Paul. He is saying, yes, you are the new man in Christ. It is true of you if you know Jesus Christ. However, this is so rampant in the society around you, and it was so much the part of you before you came to Christ, that if there is any hint that this will be a part of your life now, kill it. Put it to death. Put it away from you. Put immorality behind you. Kill impurity. Say no to passion. By the way, that word pathos, the word for passion, was used by the Stoics in this day to describe a person who allowed himself to be emotionally overcome, unrestrained, and couldn't therefore attain tranquility. It wasn't used that way by Paul. In the New Testament, every time pathos is mentioned, it ultimately leads to a shameful expression of a person's desire, usually a desire that bespeaks sexual excess. We know that's true because in Romans 1.26, that word is used. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is passion gone berserk. Passion gone awry gone haywire, gone extreme. And if that weren't enough, he says, not just immorality must you kill, not just impurity, not just passion, but then he says, evil desire. Evil desire. Epithumia cocaine. Bad desire. He qualifies it because epithumia is a word in the Greek text that really means longing. Desire. It has no sinful context unless the context provides it, and it does here because it says cocaine, bad, evil, evil desire, debased passion, foul desires, and here of a sexual character. And can you imagine that? The first four words that he uses here are of a sexual nature. You don't think that our time is bad that time was equally as bad, if not worse, especially in the sexual area. Immorality, impurity, passion, foul desires. Epithumia is a word that Paul uses in a very positive sense. He talks about longing to see his congregation, epithumia. He talks about longing to depart and be with Christ. But when in this context it has the word evil in front of it as an adjectival use, it really is talking about that which is very sinful and that which is very sexual. The people of latter day who used to write theology books used a good word. I wish we would bring this word back. It is the word concupiscence. Concupiscence. That is a word that has really left our vocabulary but shouldn't because it really embodies all that the sexual perversion of our day describes and suggests. Concupiscence. It's, it's a moral evil. It's a sexual evil. It's all that is bad. All that is evil in the sexual realm. And even in any realm. And believe me, when Paul was writing these words to the Colossians, they would have no doubt known exactly what he was talking about because they would have seen that from their own lives of the past and they would have seen that in the lives of people presently around them. And he would be writing an extremely practical letter to them. Now let me ask a question. Are the words that I'm speaking today practical for you as well? Do you in your life involve yourself 
to any degree in these sins. Now, it may be true that you might not manifest those in some sort of physical way, but do you think them? Do you think these things? Do you think about adultery? Do you think about fornication? Do you think about impurity? Do you think about passion gone berserk? Do you think about in evil desires having someone or something that you know God does not want you to have? This is practical stuff, folks. This is what Paul is writing to them and to us as well. And he's saying, this cannot be named among you. This is not a part of your existence. You're a new man in Christ. You must be, in reality, what you are in your position. O'Brien says, evil desire is a manifestation of the sin which dwells in the natural man and which controls him. It reveals his carnality, his separation from God, and his subjection to divine wrath. Now that can't be true of Christians, can it? We're not subjected to divine wrath. We cannot be a, a party to all of these things that characterize these people from all of these previous days. It can't. And then if that weren't enough, he adds greed. Greed which amounts to idolatry. And by the way, he also adds an article in the Greek text. You can't see it in the English, but it says, and the greed which amounts to idolatry. And he really is saying, and especially, and especially, or that chief vice, covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. And you say, what's the purpose of the article being added? Apparently in that day, he was saying, the greed which you all know all too well. The greed. It's which sin we all know all too well. And he really breaks with this sexual connotation, and he almost, in a sense, does an inverted list, and he puts greed up at the top. And he says, the greed which is so heinous which is so wicked that it is tantamount to idolatry. It is tantamount to worship. Now, it can, of course, have sexual overtones, right? We're commanded in terms of the Decalogue not to cover our neighbor's wife, but clearly it can in other contexts, and probably does here, have a reference to the greed of money. The greed of money. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 36, that he be pleased by God to be delivered from all greed. Why? Because it is so pervasive. In fact, it was so pervasive, even of the Greco-Roman world, that even they believed it was such a heinous thing that they wanted to throw it away from themselves. Even non-Christian people, some of them, saw no place for it in a just and equitable society. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. What is it? Greed is a craving. It is a grasping, a self-seeking, an acquisitiveness, a ruthless greed. That's why it says in Luke 12, 15, put all greed away from you. Get rid of it. It is such an encroaching sin upon our lives. Romans 1.29, greed. 1 Corinthians 5, greed. 1 Corinthians 6, greed. Ephesians 5, greed. 2 Peter 2, that false teachers are trained in greed. Boy, what a list. What a list. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing on the self-evaluation of this list? I'll tell you, when I looked through this, it was jolting, jolting. Maybe not because I'm involved in these things, but because I see it as so pervasive around me that it's almost like at times the frog in the kettle. The heat just continually by smaller degrees gets turned up and up and up, and all of a sudden when it's too late, you don't even know it's around you, and it is there. It is there. Television, magazines, radio, 
films, conversations, relationships. You can scarcely turn on the television and one of these sins is lauded as a virtue, not a vice. Is that true? Beloved, kill it. Kill it. Put it to death. Put it away from you. Because if you don't, two things will result. Number one, you will be impotent in your Christian life and service to others. Impotent. You will have, you will have very little value to other believers. You will not be for them someone that they can rely upon. Someone that they seek spiritual strength from. And secondly, if it is true of you to such a degree that it really forms itself as the pattern of your life, guess what? Maybe Paul's assumptions here in Colossians 3 aren't true. Maybe you haven't died with Christ. Maybe you haven't been resurrected to walk in newness of life. Maybe you will not be glorified with him at his coming. And it may be because you are still living in them. You are still walking in them. It would give me no greater joy than to hear, like I heard a couple of weeks ago, that someone, as a result of these messages, understood not only the gospel, but understood what it means to be a part of the old realm and the new, and said, I want to be delivered. I want to be delivered from that realm. And if you want to be delivered from this realm, it will also be true that you are delivered from these kinds of sins. They won't be a part of your life. You'll put them away from you, and you, by the power... <clears throat> excuse me, by the power of the Holy Spirit will take these things and will so wed them to your heart and your actions that you will actually be delivered from the practical presence of these things. And yet, it will be a spiritual warfare that will wage for the rest of our Christian lives. But guess what? I read the final chapter. We win. We win. These things can be put off from us, and they will because they're a command of Paul and he never gives us a command that he does not also give us the Spirit of God to carry out. Does that encourage you? That encourages me, and it tells me one surefire thing, that if I'm a new creation in Christ, I will become new. I will become new. God has given us that promise, and he will carry it out. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will mature it, will bring it to pass in the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is so true of us that at times we believe ourselves impotent, powerless, great weaknesses to fight these things. And yet we've been given the very clear direction this morning that we are commanded to put these things to death, kill them, and that because they are not a part of who we are. We've been delivered from that. Praise God, there was a day when none of us were able to fight these things at all, but we have been given salvation in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome these things to the glory of God. 